any time. Hang on, hang on. <clears throat> what do you mean you don't have a master key? I don't have a master key! You lost the master key. I did lose the master key. That'll make sense later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it actually will. No, it'll totally make sense. He did a good job. This is like one of the one things I remember about this case. I'm Micah. And we are doing a another episode of Curious Tales. It's Micah's turn this time. It is my turn. I'm excited. Okay, so we are going to go over the mysterious murder in room 1046. Room 1046. Uh-huh. Okay. This particular case takes place in... Aren't you proud of me? I'm doing a murder case. I um, am. Yeah, but this particular case takes place... In Kansas City, Missouri, in 1935. Ah, there it is. It's the 30s. (laughs) You do a lot of, like, more historical type things. I do. I don't like modern murders. (laughs) Okay, so this case takes place at the Hotel President, which was one of America's most prestigious hotels. And it is currently the only hotel in the city Power and Lights District. I don't know why that's important. I just thought it was an interesting, like, little tidbit. Okay. So what do you do we know anything about the President Hotel? Or? The hotel was best known for its drum room lounge, which hosted legendary entertainers like Frank Sinatra. Nice. It also hosted people like Benny Goodman and Marilyn May. I don't know who they are, but I know who Benny Goodman is. Okay. Well they were thrown in with Frank Sinatra, so I assumed they were also legendary entertainers that I don't know about. This case starts January 2nd, 1935. All right. Well, let's do it to it. Okay. Tell me about this this case. I'm assuming it is someone within room 1046. Good job. On Wednesday, January 2nd, a well-dressed man wearing a dark overcoat walked into the hotel president. Okay, I'm assuming he's the murder victim. (laughs) He asked for an interior room several floors up and checked into the room under the name of Roland T. Owen with a Los Angeles address. He didn't want a room overlooking the street. Where is this taking place again? Kansas City. Kansas. Okay, so he's from Los Angeles and he's in Kansas. Yes. He didn't want a room overlooking the street. Instead, they gave him a room overlooking the inside courtyard. He was thought to be anywhere between 20 to 35 years old. He had brown hair and a scar on his scalp. And he had a cauliflower ear. So he had some very identifying features. I had to look up what cauliflower ear was. 
It's a condition where your ear kind of looks like cauliflower. Yeah, it's basically, it's a deformity of the outer ear, like you just said, that may occur after injury to the ear. Common causes include injuries from sports, such as wrestling, boxing, and mixed martial arts. Basically being punched in the ear multiple times causes trauma, and the ear then will cause scarring. Scar tissue will cause the skin to form in yeah, basically. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So this led many of the people within the hotel to believe that he was like a professional boxer or he, you know, was a he wrestler had, of some sort. He had had some sort of ear injury that had resulted in this And it was very common among wrestling and boxing. Okay. Yeah. 1930s, boxing was a thing. Yeah. When Roland first checked into the hotel, a bellhop named Randolph Probst and I call most people by their first name, but Randolph and Roland were a little bit hard for me to like. So I'm just going to call him Propst. If you notice in the last episode we did, the Alcatraz, uh-huh. I used a lot of their first names. Yeah. I, I kind of use the brothers, but I use like Alan and Frank right, a right. lot rather than their last names. So I'm going to call him Propst. From now on, and he's one of the few I will refer to as, like, his surname. Anyways, just throwing that out there. Makes sense. Probst escorted him to his room on the 10th floor. While in the elevator, Roland complained to Probst that he'd spent the previous night at the nearby, I'm gonna try and say this name, Mulbach Hotel. You guys in Kansas City, let me know if I messed that up. Mulbach? But found that the $5 nightly rate was too high. $5 in 1935 is like 100 today. After arriving- That's actually still not that bad. I know, but apparently he couldn't like afford $100 a night. So he came here to the President's Hotel, which was less. I don't know how much less. Okay. I couldn't find that information in 1935. Well, it does make sense. We're, like, knee-deep in the Depression in 1935. Yeah. So, I mean, he just wanted a cheaper hotel. Once arriving at room 1046, Probst unlocked the door, then noticed something strange about their guest. Roland T. Owen had no luggage. The bellhop watched as he unpacked a hairbrush, a comb, and toothpaste from his overcoat pocket. That was the extent of his unpacking. He's wearing, like, extra clothes underneath his clothes. Yeah, well, he has an overcoat, and he just pulled... So he has what he's wearing and an overcoat. Right, but I mean, he could be wearing layers of other clothes. He could be, I don't know, but he didn't come in with the luggage or anything like that. That is very strange. But I guess maybe he sleeps in the nude, you know? I don't know, it's the depression, man. Lots of people don't have stuff. Luggage is expensive. It was enough for props to notice that that was a little bit odd. After Roland put those items above the sink, he and props left the room, and the bellboy returned to lock it and gave Roland the key. After returning to the lobby, he saw Roland leave the hotel. Eventually, he came back to the hotel because at some point, a hotel maid by the name of Mary Soptic That's a name. I know, right? I love the name Mary Softick. It's kind of funny. She went into room 1046 to clean it. They had given him a room that had not been yet cleaned from the previous guest who stayed there because Mary was really surprised to see him. 
which I don't know why they would give him a dirty room, but she just seemed really surprised to, like, for him to be there, basically. Strange. Even stranger, he was sitting in the dark with shades drawn and with only a small lamp turned on. Okay. She apologized. And maybe he suffered from migraines. I <laughs> know. I was reading this. And every single time these people walk in, he's just sitting in the dark. And I'm like, same. Same. <laughs> right? I was just sitting there going like, so. I mean, how many times have you walked in and I'm just sitting there in the dark? <laughs> Several times. But I know you've suffered from chronic migraines since high school. So I'm going to guess it's not as strange as everybody thinks it is. It's just the... The guy has some severe migraines, okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, you you read that and my brain immediately goes, he suffers from migraines. <laughs> yeah, the documentaries I was watching made it seem so very strange and I was like, it's totally normal. I do this every or, day. Or, or maybe he has light sensitivity. I know, right? You know, there's a lot of different reasons this guy is sitting in the dark. Okay, continue. Anyway, so she apologized for surprising him but he said that she could go ahead and clean the room anyways he then left but asked her to leave the door unlocked since he was expecting some friends over mary thought he seemed paranoid or that he seemed worried about something or afraid of someone she did as he asked and left the door unlocked when she left later that day around 4 p.m mary returned with some towels and she does this uh, through his stay. He stays for like two days. No, I mean, you know, she's doing her job. Yeah. Fresh towels, clean the room. That's yeah. generally, you know. And the door was still unlocked, so she just went ahead and let herself in. The door was complete. The door. The room was completely dark. And she found him laying in bed, fully dressed, not asleep, not under the covers, just, you know, chilling. Migraines, man. Migraines. <laughs> I've seen from observing you, sometimes you just can't be vertical. I know, right? On his bedside table, she found a note, which she could only read because of the light from the hallway. It said, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Okay, so is Don the person leaving the note, or is he Don? No, it's addressed to Don. Okay, so to a friend. Yeah. I guess, okay. but I mean, he's clearly now, in the know, room. Do we know how it is spelled? Is it spelled D A W N? See, that's what D-O-N. I thought originally when first watching a documentary, but when I did more research, it's spelled D O N as a god. That's generally a male version yes. of Dawn. Dawn for a girl is usually spelled D A W N. Exactly. So D O N is usually short for like Donald. Yeah. She thought this was a little bit strange because obviously he's still in the room. He's not gone. But it could have been a letter from earlier that morning. And he just didn't throw it away. Yeah. You know. He did say, like, previously, leave the door open. I have friends coming. Exactly. So to me, it doesn't seem all that strange. Some of the things that people find strange, I'm like, no, that's totally normal. That's natural. What if he has, like, you know, sensitivities to eyes and light and noise. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but sometimes if I leave a note and like you got it or whatever, but even if you got it, it might still be there in two or three days. Because 
We'd be lazy. Yeah, and this is the day before, like, you used a telephone all the time. I mean, they had telephones, but you have to go through an operator, and yeah. maybe you don't know their number. And if his friend was, like, coming up, maybe he had to step out. If I'm staying in a hotel, it would stand to reason that you know people in the city, and they would come to visit you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, there might be a letter. I don't find it strange at all. Not in the least. Okay. So far, I do not know what is strange about this case. <laughs> so, January 3rd, the next day, Mary comes back to room 1046 around 1030 in the morning to just do some normal cleaning. This time, she notices that the door was locked from the outside, which led her to believe that Roland wasn't inside the room since it could only be locked from the outside. Okay, so like at this point, I'm getting confused by like 1930s hotel rooms because it just there's something a little weird but my best guess is that you could like bolt lock yourself inside the room but you would have to use the key to leave the room and lock your door sort of like our everyday front doors to apartments and houses you know that makes sense so to me that's that's so like, like what's happening here so like i know when you go to a hotel you have a little lever the little bolt thing yeah but they can get into the room even if it's bolted from the inside so to me it would make sense that it would be like your own little house bolts when you walk into your okay. house you lock your door from the inside and then somebody can who has a key can unlock it because they use master keys here that makes later sense. on that does make sense anyways the door was locked from the outside which led mary to believe that roland was out and about on the town so she used her master key to unlock the door and found him just sitting in the dark just once again chilling in the dark not doing anything with only the one tiny lamp lit. Your notes actually say that. Just yes. chilling in just the dark. Just chilling. Just basically chilling. <laughs> Same. Understandable. Retweet. Totally. I mean, <laughs> there are some times where I don't turn on my nights, my, my lamp. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, whatever. You can't be bothered. Same, dude. So. And I don't even have migraines. <laughs> <laughs> so Mary just went in there and began cleaning like normal. And honestly, I kind of think Mary's a little bit of a badass. Because if I walk into a room, I know I'm saying it's completely normal. But if I walk into a very, very dark room and there's a man sitting in the corner staring at the door, I'd be like, nope. And I'd walk out. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not messing with that today. <laughs> While Mary is cleaning, Roland gets a phone call. And Roland answers the call and he says, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. No, I am not hungry. Okay. It sounds like Don wants to go out and get breakfast. And Roland's like, no, I already had breakfast. In all the documentaries, everybody always makes this phone call seem really eerie. But, like, if the door is locked from the outside, it would stand to reason that Dawn took the key, walked out, locked the door, and went to go out and about shopping. Maybe he ran into some food because it's 1030. And he's like, oh, let me call back and see if maybe Roland wants something. You, you know? know? And he's like, nah, nah, I just had breakfast. I'm good. I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. You go do your thing. Yeah. I don't see what's strange here. <laughs> I know, right? But they always make this phone call out to be, like, something 
really like I don't know nefarious sinister mysterious scary it's just like it's something and I'm like well if the door is locked then Don has the key of course it's locked if he has migraine or if he's just sleeping he's not gonna leave the door unlocked for somebody to just come in and like murder him no no (laughs) I mean that would be too convenient yeah Uh, No, but I mean, how many times have you just been, like, last week, you had a migraine where you were pretty much- All week. All week. You were just (laughs) in bed. You could really barely function. And if you left the house, you would not leave the door unlocked for somebody to just come in. I lock it. (laughs) I mean, of course, we have a too noisy security system in the name of Bonsai and- Chumley. Chumley. But I mean, at the same time, no. And I kept bringing you food and stuff. So again, this doesn't seem nefarious or mysterious in the least to me. And I do recall me asking, hey, Micah, are you hungry? You go, no, I'm not really hungry. When you have a migraine, and we're just guessing at the migraine (laughs) thing, but because it sounds like a migraine. Uh, but when you have a migraine or you're just genuinely not feeling good or you're sick or whatever, you don't sometimes want to eat. I made you toast. One I know. Day. Okay. Toast. So again, we don't know if he was scared or if he was just sick, you know? We're just, we're just guessing at the migraines because it, it sounds not It makes lot logical like it. sense. Okay, so still holding the phone, Roland asked Mary about her job as she cleaned. He wanted to know if she was responsible for the entire floor or if the president was like a residential hotel. So I guess he was thinking about maybe staying a little bit longer, you know, maybe Uh-oh. living there. Some hotels are you, residential hotels. Right, you can live there long term. Just check out whenever you want. That makes sense. So he repeated his complaint about the Malbach Hotel's exorbitant rates, after which she finished cleaning and left, taking the used towels with her. Okay, so Mary comes back around four. Bring new fresh towels. With some fresh towels. But when she brought these towels, she noticed that there were two men talking behind the door of 1046. Don I'm assuming came Dawn came back, but I don't know. When she knocked on the door, she heard a loud, deep voice that wasn't Roland say, Who is this? When she responded, It's Mary, the maid. I brought you fresh towels. The strange voice said, We don't need any. And yet Mary knew this was untrue because she'd taken all the towels that morning. So this now room has no towels and Mary is judging because they don't want to get baths. (laughs) Sorry, Mary. I'm sorry. Those towels could have come in handy later. This may be unrelated. There was sort of like a sighting of Roland T. Owen outside of the hotel. But they were unsure as to whether or not Roland actually left the hotel this night. So I'll just go ahead and say the sighting. The guy who ran into him 100% believe it was him. But like later on, the police were not 100% sure. That makes sense. Like the guy's like, no, it's totally this guy. And the police are like, well, we can't take this credibly. So around 11 p.m., a city worker named Robert Lane was driving on 13th Street near Lydia, which is only about a mile and a half away from the hotel. I looked it up. I was like, well, how far is this? Like, how far out of the way could this be from the hotel that it wouldn't be him? But a mile and a half isn't that much. Anyways, when he saw a man dressed in an undershirt, pants, and shoes run in front of his car and flag him down, 
Robert pulled over and the man apologized, saying he mistook the car for a taxi. And Robert could see that the man was bleeding and looked like he'd been beaten up. So he offered the strange man a ride to where he could get a taxi. In the mirror, Lane saw a deep scratch on the man's arm. He also noticed that he was holding his arm, possibly hiding a more severe wound. When Robert asked about his injuries... The man swore he would kill someone tomorrow. He drove about a mile to the nearby intersection of 12th Street and Truist Avenue, where he knew taxi drivers often waited. Robert stopped and let the man out, and the man thanked him, then walked across the street, where Robert, Robert, I keep saying Robert, and it's Robert, where Robert waited until the man got into a taxi before he drove away. This was like an encounter that was like a mile and a half away from the hotel, and somebody thought it was very strange, and so were unsure as to whether or not this was him, this wasn't him. It was about, what did I say? It was about 11 p.m. Okay. So it's about 11 o'clock at night, dude. You're bleeding. I'm not trying to let a bleeding die get in my car at 11 o'clock at night. Well, the thing is, if he's bleeding and holding his arm, why, no offense, Robert, did you not take him to a hospital? That's that You took him to a taxi. Take him to the hospital. The 30s, man. They were a different time. I know, right? Earlier that day, around 6 p.m., a woman by the name of Jean Owen checked into the president after having shopped in the city for a few hours. She started feeling, like, a little bit sick, so instead of- Wait, same last name? Yeah, Jean Owen, where this one is Roland T. Owen. Same last name. Okay. Yeah. Any connection? No. No? No. Just same last name. Just same- Owen is a very- common Common last name, I think. I apologize for my nose, guys. It's a little stopped up. That's okay. So don't hear me sniffling. I'm sorry about that. She started feeling sick and decided not to drive home that night. And she was given the room next to Roland's in room 1048. Just irony. I know. Ironic. Irony is often ironic. Later that night, she heard a man and a woman arguing and cursing at each other. Now, it should also be noted that late that night, there was a hotel party going on in room 1055. So it could also be that she heard the man and the woman arguing and cursing at each other from this party. That makes sense. But not necessarily from the room next door. But she swears it's from the hotel room next door. Which, I guess, you know, you would be able to tell which wall that arguing is coming from, right? Well, let's say, for the sake of argument, that this argument, they left the party and they're arguing in the hallway, and it's right outside the guy's door. That is a possibility. it would possibly sound like it might be, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, like, how thick the walls are. Yeah, so the police were not sure as to whether or not this was happening in Roland's room. Or whether or not it was coming from the party in 1055. So um, another strange thing happened. An elevator operator named Charles Blocker began his shift around midnight. He recalled a strange incident with a woman who he'd seen 
Many times before, she was often seen at the hotel visiting male guests in the room, so many of the hotel staff believed her to be a prostitute. She first arrived sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. Charles took her to the 10th floor, and she said that she was looking for someone in room 1026. Five minutes later, the elevator was summoned to the 10th floor again, where Charles met up with the same woman who seemed confused that her client was not in the room. She wondered if she'd gotten the room number wrong and thought maybe he meant 1024. She decided to stay on the 10th floor and look for her client a little bit longer, and 30 minutes later, Blocker got another signal to take the elevator back up to the 10th floor. When he got there, the woman was still waiting. Still unable to find her client, and Charles escorted her down to the lobby where she waited. An hour later, he took her and a different man to the 9th floor. It is possible that she found her client on the bottom floor and she got her floor wrong and they went up to the ninth floor. It is also possible that she found a different client. It is possible that she was wrong on the room and she was looking for 1046, not 1026. There's speculation. There's speculation. That, but nothing concrete. Yeah, nothing concrete. So, yeah. But she left the hotel around 4.15 a.m. and about 15 minutes later, the man that she took up to the ninth floor requested an elevator down. He told Charles that he could not sleep and was going out for a walk. So now we have this mysterious man and a mysterious Wait. woman roaming the hallway. Hang on, hang on. You, you just bought a possible prostitute and you're sitting in elevator 10, 15 minutes later? Dude, I mean, you are all business. Like, they were only up there for a little while, and then she leaves, and then 15 minutes later, he leaves to go for a walk because he can't sleep. I could not find anywhere else that they say the man comes back that night. So, like, did he just go for a walk and, like, not come back? Okay. I Again, these could be completely unrelated things. Exactly, but it is Kind of interesting, all the happenings in the hotel the night that somebody is murdered. Remember 4.15, because 4 o'clock is about the time he's murdered. I'm just going to throw that out there. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people think that the mystery man and uh, the possible prostitute had something to do with it. Okay. But again, no definitive explanation. Interesting. We are on January 4th when... At 7 a.m., Della Ferguson starts her shift as a switchboard operator at the hotel. Roland had requested a wake-up call around this time, but when Della went to call the room, she noticed that there was a light indicating that the phone in the room of 1046 was off the hook. Okay. At 7 a.m., she contacted... Strange if he was murdered at 4 a.m. <laughs> he was attacked at 4 a.m. Oh, so he's not dead yet. Oh, uh, we'll find out, won't we? Okay. <laughs> she contacted Roland Probst, the bellhop, to check on the room. He made his way up to 1046. Only when he got there, he found the door locked with a do not disturb sign on it. After several loud knocks, a voice from inside told him to enter. But Props didn't bring a master key because he never seemed to lock the door, you know? 
Okay. He couldn't unlock the door. He tried knocking again, and the voice told him to turn on the lights. So the voice is saying, come in, turn on the lights, come in, turn on the lights. But no one was letting him in. So props decides to yell at him, hey, hang up the phone through the door. Oh, dude, why don't you just go back, say, I'll be right back, sir, I don't have a key. Go back down, get the key. I get it. I get it. It's early in the morning. Your chef probably just started. You're just too tired for this nonsense. This is the frustrating part, is that if they had gotten in there, maybe, maybe his life would have been saved and we would not be talking about this mysterious murder of a locked hotel room. That is just, that's just nauseating. I know. Props went back downstairs after yelling at um, the guy in 1046 and told Della that the guest in 1046 was drunk and to give him about another hour before trying to make another phone call to him and waking him up. So around 8.30, about an hour and a half later, Della notices that the phone was still off the hook. So she sent another bellhop, Harold Pike, up to room 1046. And this is the one that really like, okay, I can forgive the bellhop for thinking he's drunk. But this is the one that really pisses me off. I'm sorry, Pike. You pissed me off. All right. So what did Pike do? So he gets up to room 1046, and the door, of course, is still locked. What time is this? It's 8.30. 8.30. An hour and a half after the first one showed up. Okay. And the door was still locked with the do not disturb sign on it. But Pike had a key, because he was smart enough to bring one, and so he let himself in. Inside, he found Roland alone, in the dark, naked, and unresponsive. Okay. He could make out from the hallway light that there was a strange dark spot on the bed just underneath of his body. Assuming that the man was drunk, instead of turning on a light, he noticed that the phone had completely fallen off the stand and was laying on the floor. Oh my god, this man keeps knocking his phone off the hook trying to get freaking help. I think so. He picked up the phone and put it back on the stand and put the phone back on the hook and just left. What? Yeah, left. Dude. Pike, we gotta talk, man, because that is not appropriate hotel protocol. He's naked and there's a weird stain. Yeah. Unresponsive. Even if he's drunk and he puked all over himself, he could have been, you know... ODing on alcohol? Or... or choking on his own vomit and needing help yeah yeah so what's even worse is not only did he leave but pike didn't tell anybody what he saw he didn't even tell anyone no he didn't go downstairs and say yo this this guy doesn't look too good we might need to send a medical up there to check on him because don't most hotel staffs have like some basic first aid people they should, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but this man does they not. They could even do the whole, is there a doctor in the house? Is anybody here staying in this hotel a doctor? We exactly. need a doctor. I mean, 1930s ambulances were really more like hearses, I think. I don't know what the history of ambulances is, but. I don't know. Maybe we'll do an episode on the history of ambulances. That might be fun, right? Maybe. Okay. So two hours later, around 1030 
another operator, not Della. I guess she's off shift or I don't know. Maybe they have multiple operators. That makes sense. But I didn't get the name of this other operator. Notice that the phone was, once again, off the hook. Yeah, because the guy is trying to get help. Either trying to be able to call for help or knocking the phone off the hook because people will come. So once again, props to the first bellboy who... I mean, I'm not upset with him yet. He just, you know, failed in his first task, but oh, we'll see. please tell me he brings a key this time. The first bellhop was sent up to the 10th floor, and the door was once again locked. So I don't know if, like, Pike fixed the phone, turned around, left, and relocked the door, or if somebody else locked the door after Pike left. That is, um... So that's the part I have a question about. Because that, to me, like, was a bit strange. This time, Props brought a key and unlocked the door. Once inside, he found Roland on the floor, basically on his knees and his elbows. His head was bloody. When Props turned on the light and put the phone back on the hook, he then noticed blood on the walls, on the bed, and even in the bathroom. Oh, Just Lord. splattered everywhere. It was even on the ceiling. Oh, that's a very... Okay, so that sounds like a blunt force type attack. He could have been hit like some sort of artery, but I mean, if he hit some sort of artery at four o'clock in the morning, the guy would be dead. Well, there, um, there, it depends. There are some places where obviously you're going to die real quick. Like a slow bleeding artery? A slow bleeding, maybe. Okay. I mean, I'm not a medical expert by any means, but I have watched a lot of forensic shows. Yeah. Um, Not that that makes me an expert in anything, and these are all just my guesstimations. Yeah. Generally speaking, an artery is going to be a bad thing. It, the fact that he's still alive, and he has no towels to stop the bleeding. He doesn't, because Thanks, Mary dude. took the towels, and Don said he didn't need yeah. any. Except for he can't stop the bleeding, because when they find him on his hands and knees, he still got his hands tied with cord. Okay, so he's bound, too. Yeah. And he is able to move with his... Because it's... I think it's just his hands and maybe his ankles or his knees or something were bound, but he's still able to, like, move around. He's talking at this point. Okay, so he's... Oh, man. That's even worse. He's conscious? Uh-huh. So Props immediately ran downstairs to get the assistant manager and to get help. Right. Because, you know, Props is on top of it once he finally got the door open and turned on a light. Unlike Pike, who all he had to do was turn on a light and see all the blood and go, Oh, crap, the guy's not drunk. Ugh. I hate that so much. When... The oh, assistant sorry. manager and props returned to room 1046. They couldn't get the door open. What? Because Roland had gotten up while props was gone and thrown his body in front of the oh, door no. to prevent somebody from coming in and finishing the job. Okay, so Isn't that he's sad. He's somewhat delirious. And he doesn't know if somebody's coming back to finish the job. He's clearly alive. So I wonder if he was the one who got up and locked the door. 
He probably was. Like, even if he's in this, like, distressed state, he is still terrified for his life. Oh, this poor Isn't that guy. sad? They managed to force the door open about six inches to see that Roland was laying there. And they managed to talk to him and get him to get up by saying, hey, I'm here to help. We're, we're, we're here to we're, get you medical attention, it, sir. Yeah, we're not here to hurt you. And so Roland got up and he moved. So I don't know if his feet are bound, but I know his wrists are bound. But he moved to the um, bathroom and sat on the bathtub. So at this point, he has a severe head injury. So, okay, the assistant manager called the police. When the doctor arrived to examine him, what he found was terrifying. So I'm getting into what your question was. Okay. Roland. I was ahead of myself. By like two seconds. By like two seconds. Roland T. Owens had been bound with cord around his neck. Oh, come on. Wrists and ankles. But I don't know if the bounds were still there at his neck and ankles. I know they were still there at his wrists. So there's like signs of ligature marks? Yes. And and there are signs of ligatures around his... Okay. Yeah. He had bruising around his neck, suggesting that someone had attempted to strangle him on top of the ligature marks. He had been stabbed more than once in the chest above the heart. And one of these wounds were puncturing a lung. Okay, so he's got bleeding probably going into the lung. Mm -hmm. Slowly suffocating him. He had several blows to the head, which left him with a skull fracture. Ooh. Dr. Harold Flanagan. Okay, this man is in a lot of pain. Oh, yeah, major. Or I'm surprised he's able to, like, think coherently to, say, lock the door or move his body well, in front of a it's door. it's also possible that adrenaline has just kind of kicked in to the point where he's not feeling it. Or the fact that he's even talking to these people I with know. a skull fracture. You know? You can survive a skull fracture. Yeah. Um, it's just not easy. It's just not easy, though. No. So you've got obvious stab. So that's like three modes right there. You have blunt force trauma to the head, strangulation. And stabbing. And stabbing. I, I mean, that's, he had all three. That's like... Somebody a, really wanted him dead. And he's still alive hours later. You yeah. did not do a good job of it, though. No. Uh, um, like, pick one, dude. <laughs> but that sounds a bit like overkill, mm-hmm. in all honesty. It does. It sounds very personal to me. It does sound very personal. Yeah. Dude, you done pissed off Don. I almost speculate if Don could have been a lover. I see. That was what I was thinking, but nobody has speculated Donna's lover as far as theories go. But I, I'm i going to put it out there as a okay. theory. I mean, being gay in the 1930s was like a big, huge no-no. Mm-hmm. I am sure. going to get into Don later because we actually possibly found out who he was later on. Okay. So just letting you know, put like okay. a little pin in that. Okay, put a pin in Don. Strangulation is a very personal thing, and oh, yeah. so is stabbing. Oh, yeah. Those are... You okay. have to be, like, right there to do it. Stabbing is often an indicator of rage. hmm You know? 
and strangulation, and that is just, you are looking at that person. I, I think it's an indicator of intimacy, which is weird when you consider, like, how gruesome strangulation is. Well, that's why a lot of serial killers use strangulating. When you Victim. look into somebody's eyes. You're, you're watching the fear, the Dude. terror, the last... <laughs> light i know it's horrible it is psychologically fascinating but it actually just thinking about it as a human like a decent human being you're just like uh just nauseating yeah exactly All right, continue okay so dr fletcher or flanders not fletcher dr harold flanders arrived on the scene <laughs> he arrived on the scene and so he was trying to tend to um, Roland's wounds. Okay. And he asked him who'd done this, and Roland responded, Nobody. Okay. I fell and hit my head in the bathtub. Okay, then how do you explain why you're bound up? And did you accidentally stab yourself in the bathtub too? I know, right? And and and, and did you did you strangle? The I bathtub? don't know. But like the doctor then asked a very kind of I'm sorry, I don't even know why they would have considered this, but they did. The doctor asked if he was trying to commit suicide, but Roland responded no. Oh yeah, I'm gonna just stab myself to death. But that didn't work, so I'll go ahead and beat myself to death. Yeah, and give I'm myself just gonna a pick up this lamp. Bam, bam, bam. Yeah, like, oh, but that so, didn't work, so... Okay, let's just, let's strangle just strangle myself. myself. Like, the problem with strangling oneself, I do not know this by experience. Again, I watch a lot of forensic shows. You'll lose consciousness before you actually achieve death. That's why you hang yourself if you're trying and to And he didn't have any, like, type of rope to hang himself. No, just cord. Do they have any idea where the cord came from? Was it from the lamps? Was it, it was just... I don't know. It, they never mentioned what it came from or where it came from. And okay, it was just I cord. I guess okay. it's still an open case as far as I know. Okay. But it's like a cold open case. It's cold case. It's like as frozen as Texas is right now. Exactly. Guys, it's like 10 degrees here, okay? 10. I'm not even kidding. Roland responded, nobody. I fell and hit my head in the bath. And the doctor asked if he'd committed suicide. I already said that. But Roland responded, no. And then Roland lost consciousness and he was rushed to a hospital, and he remained unconscious until he died shortly after midnight on January 5th. Oh, so almost a full 24 hours. No, they found him January 4th at like 7, no, at like 10.30. So it's 10.30 a.m. to midnight, because midnight would constitute as a new date. Oh, I meant almost 24 hours from the attack. Yeah, I guess that's true. Almost, because the attack you said happens around 4 a.m., so yeah. midnight, that would have been yeah. 20 hours yeah. later. So Look, eyes, I can math. You can math. <laughs> the investigation started way, I mean, they jumped into it immediately. Well, of course. And the Kansas Police Department began investigating. At least tell me the police are competent. I think they try to be competent, com competent, competent, little competent there's literally no evidence whoever did this 
did a good job. Okay. I mean, a bad job, but a good job. And like, we should never aspire to do a bad, a good job when like Committing killing. Murder. But there, there just wasn't a lot of evidence. evidence or information. The problem is, is that the hotel staff never actually saw Dawn or anybody else go into the hotel room or leave the hotel room. The and only person they ever saw. Was Roland. And of course, this is days long before security cameras. Yes. Yes. Majorly. I mean, security cameras are probably at least 50 years away. I've heard of some cases that had them in as early as the 80s, but they were like grainy and not really all that helpful. Yeah. So the police have to go off of like witness testimonies of like the hotel staff and stuff like that. And other guests mm -hmm. and things. And I've, I've told you some of the witness testimonies from Props, who's like, he didn't bring any luggage, and from Mary, who's like, he seemed really scared. And then that possible sighting of him bleeding. Yeah. The investigation, the Kansas Police Department began investigating immediately. One of the first things that they did was detain and question Jean Owens next door. Because, one, the poor lady has the unfortunateness of having the same name. Plus, she was next door. Yeah. So, like, bad time. Bad place, wrong place, Are you related? <laughs> yeah, so they wanted to know if she knew them or if he was like family member or something like that. And Jean explained that about the male and female voice that we talked about already that she had heard arguing the night before that she had no idea who the man was. Never seen him before, didn't know. They basically held her until her boyfriend came and like collaborated the story because he came the night before for two hours to check on her because she was sick so he actually heard the arguing too or something like so that so one could speculate that it was in fact the possible prostitute and he's like it, no i'm not your john i don't know what you're talking about exactly um as a possibility but again nobody knows yeah. and so yeah they held her until her boyfriend showed up and was like uh-uh no no she had nothing to do with it and they let her go basically okay and dr flanders remained on the scene he examined roland's body but he also examined the blood stains in the hotel room and he determined because of the dried blood in his hotel room, that the wounds had been afflicted between 4 and 5 a.m. that day. So right around the time the prostitute and the strange guy left Were the hotel. walking. Yeah, left the hotel. Okay. So We're not saying that it was them, but they pretty sus. Let me do this as a timeline. We already sort of discussed it, but like... Okay, if he died, not died, if he was wounded at 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock, that is two to three hours after Propst first visited. Still very viable to live. That is three to four hours after Pike entered his room and did absolutely nothing. That is five to six hours after he was finally discovered. Like, honestly, I don't want to put blame on the hotel, but this is definitely frustrating. Totally. Especially when you think about how they were made aware of something being wrong not two hours later. Not two to three hours later because of the blinky light. And he was clearly asking for help. 
Yeah, he was clearly either trying to get to the phone or knocking the phone off. And the frustrating thing is he could have survived had they come and in. And all he did was say, come in and turn on the light. Yeah, come in, turn on the light. Come in, please. I suppose not to victim blame. He could have said, help, I'm bleeding. Yes, exactly. I mean, better communication on both parts yeah. would have worked. Uh, not to victim blame. Definitely not. But definitely blame and the hotel. And not, not to blame the hotel because it's not like they would have known that that no. happened. And I don't know how many drunk people leave their phones off the hook. And if this is like a normal Maybe occurrence. Maybe it's a common occurrence. Yeah. But the doctor who performed his autopsy determined that Roland did, in fact, die from his wounds, which we sort of already figured. You know, there was just, like, a lot of blood. So, I mean, yay. Uh, The detective searched the room 1046 and took note of what props first noticed, that there was no clothes or luggage. And they did, however, find a tag to a necktie. But no necktie, just a tag from a New Jersey company. Which they thought was odd, but like, you know, anyways, everything in this case is a little bit odd, but not odd, you know? It's like... Like, everything is just strange enough. Yeah, strange enough. Among some of the items missing from the room was soap, shampoo, and towels that were normally provided by the hotel, although we've determined, and everybody goes, yeah, the the soaps, the shampoos, and the towels were missing, but like... Mary took the towels. Is it not unbelievable to say that she might take the used shampoos and the used soaps? Or, generally speaking, don't they provide more for you? Yeah. And but Mary couldn't get in the door Because Don was like, no, we don't need any of them. We're good. <laughs> yeah. So the detectives also didn't find any kind of weapon or knives in the room. So they ruled out suicide or self-injury, which really is just a ridiculous thought anyways. But I get that they have to like rule it out. They gotta rule it out. And they came to the conclusion that someone must have attacked him. Clearly. Clearly. One of the room's two glasses was found in the sink broken and the other was still on the shelf. Detectives found some other items that might have been evidence, a hairpin, a safety pin, an unsmoked cigarette, a full bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. Okay. That one was a little bit like, okay. Diluted sulfuric acid. Yeah. What would it even be used for? (laughs) Besides, like, the gory stuff. I mean, I've heard of people using it to dissolve a body. I know, but but it was like a full bottle. Wouldn't you need more than just a bottle, though? Oh, you would need a lot more than just a bottle. Yeah. So I don't know why it would be there, but okay. So the detectives also dusted for fingerprints, but it's like 1935, so like their technology on fingerprints aren't great. No, you literally have to go, "Mm mm-hmm, 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 this ridge looks like that could be, oh, that's a whirl. That, oh, no, this one doesn't match. It doesn't have a whirl. (laughs) So, but they did find at least four different fingerprints on the phone. But it doesn't help because, again, they don't have a, like, today they have a system where they can compare. They have APHIS, where they can compare from all across the country, across various different law enforcements. But back in the 30s. They did find one of the fingerprints was what they thought was a woman's fingerprint. Of course, we don't know if it is or isn't. 
But based on the shape and size. So I'm guessing this is an unsolved case. Yeah. Based on the shape and size, it was a thin, small fingerprint, like the shape of a woman's finger. Okay. So they determined that it wasn't Mary's finger. It wasn't any of the hotel staff's fingerprint. And so we have a mysterious female, what we think is a female, possible female fingerprint on a phone. What we have here is we have at least a male and a female. Yes. Possibly. The police sought help from the press and the story made front page news. So they stated, there is no doubt that someone else is mixed up in this, Detective Johnson told reporters, confirming that the case was considered a homicide. Obviously. Obviously. Going on to the identity of the body. Wasn't his name Roland T. Owens? Detectives contacted the Los Angeles Police Department to notify next of kin because he had a Los Angeles address. When the Los Angeles Police Department came back with, um, yeah, we don't have a Roland T. Owens here. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was an alias? Yeah. And a fake address? Yeah. Oh no. So now they don't even know who he is? Nope. The dead man's fingerprint was sent to what was at the time the Justice Department Bureau of Investigation later called the FBI to find a possible match in their collection. But while waiting on that, they've never found a match. Well, they have like a year later, but like, we'll get into that. Actually, I don't know if they ever like got were able to match fingerprints because I don't know that they would have been able to match those fingerprints with his fingerprints, but whatever. We'll we'll get to it. While awaiting a match from the Justice Department, the hotel president received a phone call from a woman. She wanted to know what Roland T. Owens looked like and claimed that she knew him from Clinton, a town only 50 miles away. The newspaper reported of a man under an assumed name being murdered in a hotel room and the Mulbuck Hotel contacted the police and stated that Yeah, he stayed here for like one night, but he went by a different name, Eugene K. Scott. He also gave a Los Angeles address and, again, requested a room high up on the interior side of the building or inside the building. So nobody could climb through a window and kill him. This is obviously a man who's scared. Again, after investigating the LAPD, reported that once again, there was no one by the name of Eugene K. Scott. The funeral home put his body on display for identification because back then... Funeral homes did that. They didn't have technology or internet or any other way to identify a a person like we do today. So people flock from all over the country to see if it was their missing loved one. There were a couple of possible matches. This is where Robert Lane went to view the body and identified the man by the gash on his arm. And he says, I saw this man. Okay. Yeah. As being... And that was at 11 o'clock. Yeah. The police, however, were not so sure since none of the hotel staff reported seeing the man leave the hotel that night. And police were able to establish one sighting of Roland outside of the hotel. A report that he had been seen with two women at several liquor places on 12th Street, though I'm not sure when this was or what day it was or what time it was. I could only find like a small statement on it. But they're like, no, this is the only positive identification was 
he was at liquor store with these two women. They're inconclusive with Robert Lane because they couldn't prove that he left the hotel. So my best guess is that he was seen with these two women liquor place when he left the first time when props first gave him the room. Right. You know, or that makes sense. when Mary came in and was like, you know, I need to clean your room. And he left and said, Hey, leave the door open. I have friends coming. So those are my two possible explanations. Which is also when he could have put the note down. Yeah, exactly. Well, he wasn't back in 15 minutes. I found some girls and some booze. Yeah. Another man came to the funeral home and identified the body as his cousin. But when the man's sister came to view the body, she confirmed that the cousin had, in fact, died five years earlier. Oh, boy. Another man named Tony Bernardi, a wrestling promoter, because remember he had the cauliflower ear, thought that he might be a wrestler by the name of Cecil Werner who'd uh, approached him about some wrestling matches, but Bernardi wound up referring him to another promoter in Omaha, Nebraska, but that promoter did not identify him as Cecil. So that kind of fell through, too. Within a few days, two new homicides in the city drew detectives' attentions away from Roland's case. I'm just going to call him Roland until we know who he is. We gotta we gotta solve murders that we actually have clues on. And newspaper coverage dwindled, and the leads had all fallen cold. He did come back up a couple months later in Mar- on March 3rd when the funeral home said he has yet to be identified, so we're going to give him a popper's... Is it called a popper's? A yeah. popper's grave? And so the news, like said that he was going to have a pauper's grave. And apparently the same day that the news aired or was in the newspaper or whatever, I don't know exactly how that worked, but the same day that that happened, the funeral home received a phone call from a man who asked the funeral to be delayed so that he could pay for a grave and a service in a nearby cemetery, Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City. Now, he stated that the reason he wanted to do it at this cemetery was so that he would be close to, Roland would be close to his sister. But I don't know if any of that's true. And I don't know who the mysterious man was. Was it Dawn? We don't know. Close to a sister? Well, what sister? When the funeral director asked why the man had been killed, the caller responded that Roland had had an affair with one woman while engaged to another. And the caller and the two women had apparently arranged the encounter with him at the president in order to exact revenge. Cheaters usually get what's coming to them. Then the caller hung up. So, like... Could have been the murderer. I guess he's, like, he arranged to have this revenge happen on him, but he's gonna pay for the funeral? Maybe it went south real bad. Maybe they didn't. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know, but um, the service was postponed, like requested, and on March 23rd, the funeral home received an envelope, and the address was carefully written using a ruler to prevent anybody from matching handwriting. Wow. Inside the envelope was $25 or 500 in today's day and age. That's still not enough to pay for a funeral Which today. was enough to cover expenses. Okay, but it's not today. A second envelope was sent to a local florist 
with $10 to pay for an arrangement of 13 roses on the grave. A card was requested to go with the roses to say, Love Forever Louise. Both phone calls to the funeral home and the florist were made from a payphone to various different payphones within the city. Hard to track. And the funeral was held shortly afterwards. Besides the officiating minister, the only attendees were police detectives, some of whom served as pallbearers. Over the next several days, detectives disguised as grave diggers staked out Roland's grave, but no one came to visit. Oh, so I'll pay for you to be buried, but I'm not going to come visit you. No, he probably figured that police would be there to, like, see who would come to visit. That makes sense. No, it's not the first time that Mm -hmm. graves have been stuck, done a stake out on a grave to try to see if the murderer will come to show respects. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of a common practice among police officers. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon to have a police officer planted Mm -hmm. in a funeral to see if anyone is suspicious. Exactly. So several Um, days after the funeral, a woman called the Kansas City Journal Post to inform them that the dead man from room 1046 was not buried in a pauper's grave, but that he'd been given a formal funeral she said that the funeral home and flower shop could verify this though she'd refused to identify herself she did mention he got into a jam and ended the conversation i'll say he did so we have a strange man calling to pay for a funeral a strange woman calling the newspaper to inform possibly them louise possibly louise there were so many questions and it seemed like at least two people had the answers but why he was murdered, we we don't know. So fast forward about a year later, we're finally going to look at the body being identified. Oh, good. When we finally find some answers. The American Weekly published an article about the story as well as a picture of him in hopes that somebody seeing the article might identify him. That someone was Ruby Ogletree. From Birmingham, Alabama. Ogletree. Ogletree. That's a name. She read the article, then quickly realized that the unidentified man was her 17-year-old son. 17? 17. He was just a baby. He was just a little baby. I know. His name was Artemis Ogletree. Oh, so he just really, really got himself into some trouble. Yeah. This poor At seventeen, baby. he was murdered, and we know don't know why. Oh, he was just a little baby. Her son left home in 1934 to hitchhike to California. He'd written her several handwritten letters to keep up to date with whatever was going on in his life. As time went on, the letter became fewer and further between and even became stranger in their writings. But she'd had no idea that anything had happened to him, that her son was murdered in such a gruesome way. So, like, reality check and horrible reality check, your son's dead. And you find out through a magazine. Ugh. 
That's just horrible. Ruby immediately contacted the Kansas City Police Department and was able to provide enough information to identify the man, including a description of his head scar, which she explained was the result of an accident with cooking grease when he was a young child. She even showed the investigators letters that Artemis had sent her. There was just one problem. Several of the letters were dated after Artemis Ogletree was murdered in Kansas City. These letters were not like Artemis' handwritten letters. These letters were written using a typewriter. Oh, no. The well, as we have seen in previous cases, like with the Lonely Hearts killers, <laughs> they used typewriters. typewriter with their one of their victims yes. to send letters to but her like, daughter. How horrible so for he, this mother to be getting these typewritten letters. She literally thinks that her son is still alive. Yeah, still and somebody is sending them trying to prevent her from finding out. Okay, so we're going to go over the letters. The first letter was written in the spring of 1935. Ruby did think that this was odd as her son didn't know how to use a typewriter. It was also written with a lot of slang, which was not consistent with his previous letters. He didn't use slang when talking to his mom, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's perfectly... You use a different There language. is a certain... Yes, there is... You communicate with a parent in one way, and you communicate with friends and peers in a different way. Yeah. It's just... I mean, if you're going to do it, don't... Put slang in the letter that you're trying to pass off as somebody else to their mother. So it's obvious that the person who typed up the letters didn't know him well enough. Knew him, but didn't know him well enough. Right. So a second letter was sent in May of 1935 to Ruby. This one was also typed with a typewriter. In it, the alleged Artemis said that he was going to Europe. This was followed by another special delivery letter saying that his ship was sailing that day. Both of these letters were sent from New York. Okay. Three months later, in August, Ruby got a phone call from a man in Memphis, Tennessee. The man told her that Artemis had saved his life in a bar fight, but that he'd lost one finger and was unable to write. I think he said it was his thumb. I'm not sure. That was why Artemis started learning to use a typewriter and why her letters had been typed, because he could no longer hold a pen. He also told Ruby that Artemis would be unable to call for a while because he was now living in Cairo, Egypt, where he'd married a high-class woman, but that he was healthy and doing well. She recalled that the man seemed to talk wildly and irrationally, but that he had first-hand knowledge about Artemis. She gave the police the name that the man identified himself by, and it was never made public. It was never, the name was never released to the public. Later developments, and there's not much, because like I said, this is a full-on cold case. And nobody really knows anything, but he was only 17. And this is where I'm getting into Dawn. Okay, get into Dawn. Investigations reopened the case thanks to new information brought to light by Ruby Ogletree. They discovered a third hotel in Kansas City, the St. Regis Hotel, where Artemis roomed with another man. Whether this other man had been Dawn, 
was not determined. In 1937, the New York Police Department arrested a man named Joseph Martin after he'd killed his roommate and tried to ship the body to Memphis. Wait, what? <laughs> Joseph Martin killed his roommate and tried to ship the body to Memphis and he got caught and was arrested for it. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because the police found his wallet with several aliases, including one named Donald Kelso. Ooh, they also okay. found some handwriting samples that the Kansas Police Department later matched to the letters written to Ruby Ogletree. But no charges were filed for the Ogletree case, and the case went cold. And the last like little shred of like ongoing is in early 2000 john horner a local historian received a call from someone out of state they said that they had been helping to inventory the belongings of an elderly person who died when they found a huge shoebox filled with articles and newspaper clippings about the case the caller never identified themselves and nothing ever came from the mysterious phone call Okay. But they, they thought it was strange enough to report that there would just be this shoebox full of the case. So, but they never looked into it. Well, I don't know if they never looked into it or if they just couldn't find the caller because the <sighs> caller refused to identify themselves. That sucks. Theories. So there are a few theories to consider as a possibility. The telephone calls to the newspaper and funeral home in Flores Alleging that Ogletree was killed in retaliation for cheating on a loved one is certainly interesting. You can get into some trouble. Yeah. Another possibility is Don, whoever he was, possibly Joseph Martin, killed Ogletree for some personal reason. Either with the help of the mysterious woman, possibly a prostitute. That Do you know how old he was? Who? Uh, Don? Don? I have no idea. Um, because we don't honestly know if it was Joseph Martin, and I don't know how old Joseph Martin was at the okay. time. And another theory that is considered is that Artemis Ogletree got involved with organized crime, since the name Don can also be titled for a mob boss. But I think this is a little weak, to be honest. You know, with some of the strange happenings, it could also be organized crime, because they would possibly like take care of their own even if they screwed up by that's like true. ensuring that they got a proper funeral that's true you know but i still think it's a little bit weak that don the reason that there is this link is because yeah don is a, i don't really yeah. think you're gonna be referring to the letters as don so what do you guys think i kind of like your theory of it being like some sort of like gay um i mean revenge plan it, in the 1930s, they would have been attacked uh, yeah, if they were gay. You, you would not have, I mean, what, it's only been in the last, like, 20 years that it's been safer? Yeah. But if um, Don was actually this, like, Martin person, he killed his roommate and tried to mail him to Memphis. Like, so, is it possible that he then would have been able to kill... Don, not Don Roland, not Roland, Artemis, whatever his name is, Artemis. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that that's what it was. It is also possible that maybe, I'm just throwing this out there, Artemis could have been bi. Mm hmm And so, the love triangle thing. Yeah. So it, there's a lot. It's definitely some, okay, to me it definitely sounds like it is someone who knew him. 
And it sounds like he was on the run. I mean, three hotels in Kansas City, staying with the same guy, but, like, keeping the doors locked and the lights off, you know, staying in an interior hotel. Oh, yeah. He wanted to be up high and interior with no windows. That's very specific. Yeah. You know, ground floor, somebody climbs in through the window. Yeah, you're gone. You're done. Yeah. So that that is the case. Of the mysterious murder in room 1046. That's really kind of sad. Isn't she was it? only 17. I know. Isn't like, it I sad? was expecting him to be... 25 like, years 25 old. or older. Yeah, I was expecting him to be, like... You know, he said he was between, he was between 20 and, and 35. I was expecting, like, oh, 25 is kind of in the middle of that ish and i was like i was expecting him to be in his 20s i, I was not expecting him to be that young i know you kept that from me i did i tried to because that oh. was like a shocking part you know so. yeah that's really shocking now was he 17 when he left home no he's 17 when he, he died. died yeah oh. 17 when he died so he was just a little baby this is a little baby. Yeah. So you guys let us know what you guys think is what you guys think happened to him. Again, it's a cold case, so nobody actually knows. But we'd love to hear your theories. Yeah. yeah. And also, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook under Curious Tales. We have a Facebook under Curious Tales? Yeah, we have a Facebook. Oh, girl, us. set it up, yeah. Oh. Yeah, we have a Facebook. Okay. And you can find our podcasts on Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. Yeah. And maybe even YouTube. We'll see. We'll see. We are seriously considering just slapping them up on YouTube. Yeah. Don't say slapping them. Well, I mean... <laughs> I put a little more effort than just slapping them. Well, they're already edited. All you gotta do is... Put it to a, uh, take the audio with our picture. picture, and there you go. So it's pretty slapped together. I guess that's true. <laughs> well, we're thinking about putting them up on YouTube. So yeah. if we do, leave a comment below, and don't forget to like and subscribe. And ring that little notification bell. So you know whenever a new one comes on. <laughs> Gotta have all our bases covered, you know? Yeah, just, just in case. All right, you guys. That was the, the case of... Room 1046. We'll see you guys next time. I'm Missy. I'm Micah. Bye. Bye.